Well, good morning. Thank you for being here. Could you turn to someone around you and say good morning to them and wish them a Merry Christmas for a moment? Do you mind doing that? Yes? Feel free to shake their hand, as I always tell you. It's okay to touch in church as long as it's, you know, like within boundaries. But we are glad that you are here today. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke chapter 2, and we start reading at verse 1. It would be remiss of us to not uh, continue in the book of Luke as we did last week in chapter 1 today, chapter 2. And so we want to share, in, and I think that the sound just went out, did it not? Isn't that wonderful? Yes. And that, there we are. Are we back? We are back. Okay. We're back. Okay. Bradley's running. I see people running up there, scurrying like, oh no, what are we going to do? It's all good. It's all good. Um, we're back in. So thank you. Luke chapter 2 today, starting with verse 1, and it is what we traditionally call the Christmas story, and I'll read it to you in its entirety, the whole narrative, in just a moment as we start our study together this morning. Today, simply part four of our series, The Already But Not Yet, and this morning, the promise of the already but not yet. Now, so here is the thing. We, uh, we have about two days till Christmas. To that day, we have part of today, tomorrow being Christmas Eve, and then the next day being that day. So your shopping is complete. And I know that you can relax in that this morning and say, Mark, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, those things are not done in my life. I feel the pressure of that. And some of the men are sitting in here saying that I have yet to buy my wife a gift. And when I ask her what she wants, then she always says, well, it really doesn't matter. Now, here is a marital nugget for you this morning. It always matters, okay? Understand that. Realize that. It always does matter. Get that through your thick head. So, and you say, and, and, but you're worried, and you should be worried, okay? So understand that. But those are the spaces that we find ourselves living in this time of year. We really do. And all the pressure and all the, all the requirements that seem to fall upon us uh, during this of the Christmas or Advent season. I mean, we're, we're, cop- we're carpet bombed with all of these advertisements and ads, you know. And, and I always like the, I'm not advocating for a certain store. So I just, you know, watch it and, and hear it like you do. And so I, I see the, the Publix ads that they have on television, and I always get emotional during that. I don't know if you do or not, you know, because it's very emotional. And then all of a sudden, I have this weird desire in my life to go to the grocery store. I don't know why that happens, but it does. And then you watch movies, and at the end of the movie, you know that everything is going to always come together. There's always going to be this Christmas miracle that takes place, that finally the rift in our family will be healed. The other night, Reva and I sat in our bed while Grace and some of his friends met at the house. We kind of made ourselves invisible after we fed them. And so we, you know how it goes. And so we made ourselves invisible. And so we went to our bedroom and we watched the movie Fred Claus. I don't know if you've ever watched the movie or not, but it's fairly entertaining. And I found myself, you know, so going through this, this movie where it simply comes to this point of family reconciliation to get kind of choked up over that. And you say, Mark, it doesn't take much to choke you up. Well, that's okay. But I found myself feeling that, that, oh, everything is going to come together because it's, it's that, that expectancy of the season that, that we living in. It is that you're going to get a gift that's going to meet the desire of your heart during this time. And so what we do is we overload this time with expectations. 
We overload it with expectations. And yet many times that those expectations are unrealistic because the time, the season can't bear under the weight of our expectations. Those are the shadows. We talked about that for the past few weeks together, that those are the shadows we chose to embrace. We chose to embrace the substance and celebrate the shadows together. So we use the term Advent a lot around here in meaning the arrival and, and so what we understand about through this, all through this is that that piece of Advent, a little more different to wrap our mind around, and that piece of Christmas, it really is. The seasons, the lights, all the things that we celebrate, which are absolutely wonderful, and I love them, but we tend to overload our hearts and our minds with those things, the shadows, and we can't really wrap our minds and our hearts around that thing, those things of shadows. And so let me redeem this for a moment and say to you that. The shadow is a reflection of something bigger and greater. The substance belongs to Christ. And we say that uh, through this season many, many times together. The shadows of Christmas, oh, they're good stuff. Don't get me wrong. They're wonderful. I love that. Absolutely. That, you know, I, I love the, the celebration, the songs. Oh, I love the, the gifts. All of, I, I enjoy all of the. I love the food. I don't know if you like the food or not. But I really love the food. I've already made that decision in January to no longer eat the kinds of foods that I eat during Advent, you know. And so I, I, I love the food and, and all of those kinds of things. Our neighbors, we share those sweets. And so they bring them to our house and then we consume them. So that's kind of the way it works. And so this is all good stuff. But our hope is not in the shadow of the time of this year. But yet our hope is in the substance of what we talk about through Advent. So our prayer has been over these weeks together, that during the Advent season, that you turn your hearts and minds toward the, what we have used the term, the already, but the not yet. And let me explain that to you. Maybe it's your first time here this morning with us through the Advent season. The incarnation, that of Christ coming wrapped in flesh, God wrapped in flesh, that is the already, that He has come, that He lives among us, He lives within us, He has redeemed us, so that is the already, the not yet, oh, that is that, that time in the future, that point in history when He returns again and He makes all things right, the second advent, so that is the already but not yet. And so before we read this story in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, what I realize is this, that what an opportunity what an opportunity for God to enact His plan with such majestic flourish. It, it absolutely is that the birth of Christ. When you read these words in a moment together, it is such a powerful moment. But yet, what a moment to do that in this majestic manner. But yet, He chose to not presume on humanity. He did. That He steps into the mess of our world but there's no pretense in the arrival of Christ. When we read the story, you'll see all of that. No, God chose to identify in the most humblest way that he came, he came in the midst of those made in his image. And I think that's a powerful thought. This story mixes praise and this story mixes simplicity. We talked a little bit about John the Baptist last week in Luke chapter 1. And when you contrast the birth of John the Baptist and that of Christ our Lord, it's such a powerful contrast. Because John the Baptist's birth, oh, it's announced in the capital at the temple in the center of the Jewish nation. He's born to that. He's born to, to that of uh, uh, that of his father being a priest and his mom being a righteous woman. But then, when you take the birth of Christ, what you find is this: that Jesus arrives in obscurity. That he's born to that a son of a carpenter from Nazareth and a fourteen-year-old betrothed present girl. And when you look at the contrast of those things, it is mind-boggling. The story of Advent is truly mind-boggling. And so I want to read it to you today. 
there, uh, verses 1 through 20, and you've heard it so many times, but I think that every time we read it together, there's such a freshness and such a power to it. So I read to you this morning, Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be registered. This was the first registration for Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up to Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. Verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, cloth, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for him in the inn. Verse 8, and in the same region... There were shepherds out in the field watching watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Verse 17, And when they saw it, They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So this morning, for a few moments, we engage that space together. This of Advent. We celebrate the shadow, but we lean into the substance of what Advent truly is to us. We focus on the present while waiting with anticipation for the future coming of Christ. And all of this that I just read, based upon a promise. It is. Based upon a powerful promise. But that promise, oh, that promise starts long before the book of Luke. In fact, you have to go all the way back to the beginning. It goes back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, starting with verse 14. Can I read you the promise this morning? Because I think this helps us to understand this story in a greater depth for us this morning. It's Luke chapter 3 and verse 14. It says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall eat. you shall eat all the days of your life. I hate snakes. Now, I don't know. Now, that's not in there, okay? So don't look and say, where is that? No, that's not in there. But if you are like me, I hate snakes. And, and those of you that love snakes and you have pets, fine, but you're weird. Okay, I just want to say that to you, okay? <clears throat> Excuse me. I love you, but that's kind of a strange thing to keep in your home, especially in the light of this verse, I guess, you know. But he's talking to Satan, and he has this audience of that of Adam and Eve standing there, and then he gives the promise. And this is what he says in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. You sh- he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. In this moment of our rebellion, in this moment of taking all the beauty and the perfection that God had created in Eden, 
that we kind of thumb our nose at God and say that we know better than you. It's the sin of old, and that is that we know better than God, and we become a God ourselves, is at least that is what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with. And so at that moment, in response to all of that in our life, God gives us this amazing promise of redemption. And so this is the promise. This is the story. This is where Advent begins. And so in order for us to embrace this narrative completely this morning, then I think in light of Genesis 3, 14, and 15, then we have to understand our position here. Where do you and I fit in the story? This is about shepherds and angels and Mary and Joseph, and this is about the manger in Bethlehem and all of those kinds of things. But where do we fit? And when you read chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, what we realize that our position in all of this is we're broken. That's where we fit, that you and I are broken that we're not just the victims of brokenness, and I'm not devaluing those things that you have victimized you, and I'm not saying that there are influences in your life that dictate our behavior or have a uh, bearing on our behavior, but here is the thought, and we need to embrace this fully this morning, that we're broken. We're not just victims of brokenness this morning, but we ourselves are broken that we are active members of the rebellious force of that of the rebellion against the Creator. That's who we are. Merry Christmas. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? Yes. Mark, this is Christmas Sunday. You cannot start out saying those things to us like that because that's not what... No, no. In order for you to understand Luke chapter 2, you have to understand the role that you play and that I play in this. And that is that God looked at us in our broken state in Genesis chapter 3. And he said, in a time in the future, I will send one wrapped in flesh who is going to fix this mess that you're in. And that is the promise. You and I find ourselves broken. And in light of that, we have a greater understanding of what Luke is telling us in Luke chapter 2. It is amazing. Yes, because we're the way we are this morning, and, and, I, and I say this because I love you on Christmas Sunday morning, I say, but, but it's not because we didn't get enough hugs when we were a kid, and I understand how things do influence. I know, I know that, but the scripture says that you and I are born in iniquity. We're born in rebellion, and we try to distance ourselves from that by identifying in systems and that of structures in the world, that, but our brokenness occurs in our heart. The brokenness occurs in my heart and your heart. And that is a beautiful thing. Mark, how is that a beautiful thing on Christmas Sunday morning? How is that broken? Because it answers the question, can I fix myself? Can you? Oh, you tried. I have tried. Can I fix myself? And the answer to that huge question is no. We cannot fix ourselves. We are in desperate need of a Savior. We've tried, we've tried the advances of technology. We've tried structures and systems in our world. But what we realize is that they're all created and made in the sinful heart of man. And so when we look at our lives, what we realize is that this promise, this promise of God being revealed in the God-man Jesus is an intervention into my brokenness and yours. That we're broken. That's important that we understand that. That's... The element sometimes I think we leave out of this story that we just read. That Jesus comes into our brokenness. That we are not just victims of a broken world, but yet we are broken in our own heart in desperate need of a Savior. And thus a Savior is given 
a promise kept. And that is the story of Advent. That is the story of Advent. Now, let's take this text apart for a few moments together. Going back to Luke chapter 2, verse 1, reading it again. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, all the world should be registered. This was the first registration from Quirinius, was governor of Syria. It's important that we understand how the Bible is written. Because the Bible is written not just as a religious manuscript or a myth, but there is a historicity. There is something that we can go back and say, these things are provable. They're, they're factual historically. That is why Luke does his homework and he gives us these details that we think, you know what, you could really tell the story without giving these names and all these kinds of locations. But yet he does that because it helps us to verify historically that these things are facts. And so he goes on to say in verse 3, and all went to be registered, each one to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And when they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. It's the promise. It is the promise. And in light of our condition that we just come to an understanding maybe of it from Genesis chapter 3, in light of that, this is a powerful promise that we have to marvel when we see this of how God, how God even uses that of governmental authorities for his own purpose. God doesn't condone the behavior of Caesar here. That's not what this is about at all. But yet God uses whoever he wants to use because God is God. That is something that we have to understand, that he's not in heaven looking down, thinking, you know what, I made this promise way back in the book of Genesis, and so i got to figure out how to work this out. I made a specific promise in the book of Micah that we're going to read in just a moment, but how do I work this out? How do I get Mary and Joseph the 90 miles from that of Galilee to Bethlehem? How do I do that? Because I've made that promise. It's Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for, for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who comes forth is for, who, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And, and it's not like God is up in heaven. I have this kind of imagination because you should read the word of God with imagination, not trying to read something that's not there, but it's written so we read it with imagination. And, and I read it, and I had this thought, no, God is not up there thinking, you know, maybe I could send a vision, or then maybe I could send a talking donkey. That's a really good idea. You know, I should use that sometime. Maybe I could do that. No, no, wait a minute. I have Caesar. I have Caesar. The point here is that God receives his glory even through evil rulers like Caesar. Never doubt who is in control. I think that's the point that we could take from this. Never doubt who is in control. And I believe that we go through life many times and we look at media and we look at all the things that are being continually put before us and we wonder who is in control. Can I tell you, God is in control. God is in control. And in that, oh, in that, I find great rest this morning that God is in control. And what I realize is this, that in light of what we just read and how God uses Caesar, that, that at some point in history, all of our lives bring glory to God. Philippians chapter 2 says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But when I read this story, 
if I were the writer, I would probably have written this narrative a little different. Because this is the Savior that's coming, as we talked about the first week in Isaiah chapter 9. And He is bringing light into our darkness. He's pushing back and repelling darkness within our lives. He's going to fix the brokenness of our world. And, and how, would, how would I rewrite this? I probably would choose different parents for Jesus. I probably would have. Not a broke carpenter from this ghetto little town called Nazareth. No. And we know from Isaiah 9 that we talked about from the very first week, that he comes from this region that's pillaged and burnt. It's, it's wasted. It's, the, it's perhaps the most undesirable place that you could ever live in all of Israel. And that's where, that's where Joseph comes from. And then God chooses Mary. At best, she's probably 14 or 15 years old. She's a peasant girl from this town also. And, and out of this poverty, you say, Mark, what do you mean out of poverty? Well, they're people of no position. If you really think about this a lot, when they show up in Bethlehem, they can't find a room in the inn. And we know that we understand in their culture that if you showed up for a room in the inn and your position in society is higher than someone else that already has a room, guess what? They get evicted and you get the room. What if it worked like that? What if it worked like that at the Holiday Inn for you? Isn't that amazing? Yes, you show up, your position is higher than the person that's already in one room. And so they go through the list. Oh, you're higher on the list socially. You, they go get evicted. You get that room. That's the way it worked. We know they didn't have a room. They find themselves in a stable. Why? Because they are a couple of no social position. There's no upward mobility, social mobility within their life. And so they find themselves in the stable that night. God keeps all of his promises even the ones that seem small and don't seem to matter, that He keeps them all, that those promises should move us to worship. They should anchor our confidence in who He is, that He is in control. But it doesn't always do that. I think, one, because sometimes we lack a knowledge of those promises in our life. And second is this, because I don't think sometimes that we even see a need for those promises in our life. Because we, I think we're distracted from seeing really how fragile we are. As humans, how out of control we are because we live in this constant, near constant illusion of control that I can control and I can protect and I can make things happen around my life. And it's an illusion. It is. It's an illusion when you think that you have control over everything. And we do that because we don't marvel at the promises of God. God is in control. And because of God being in control, you can trust him. That is what this text says to us, that you can trust him. Even when circumstances in your life are not working out the way you want. Even when you don't have everything that you desire. Yes, we, we don't trust Him. And, and I think we just fail to see His promises because sometimes we're our own sovereign. That we think that we truly have dominion over all the things of our own life. And when I look at this, I know that He makes a promise. And He keeps the promise. I see that God is in control of all things. Even leaders of the nation that God is in control of. That history is there to simply bear this up. And so I trust him. What do you need to trust God for this morning? What are you trusting God for in your life? Is it a relationship? Is it, is it, is it your job? Is it, is it a, an addiction that you're struggling with, but you just can't seem to surrender that to God this morning within your life? Then realize that God is in control. So you trust him today. It's a promise. God keeps promises. Yeah, he does. 
And we don't always keep promises because we're not able to keep promises. No. As much as we want to, we struggle because we're human. We do. So let's, let's make the ground level for a moment. Say, Mark, you always do that. That means you're going to ask us one of those pointed questions. That's exactly right. That's exactly what is about to happen, yes. And I ask you this question. How many of you have ever made a promise and you could not keep that promise? Raise your hand, please. If you've ever made a promise and you could not keep it. Let me see. Look around. Look around the room. That is wonderful. Now, somebody's sitting next to you, and they're wondering, wait a minute, you promised that you're going to get me a gift, and, and, you know, and I'm going to have it on Christmas morning. Does that mean that that's what you're talking about? You know? And maybe this is the time to confess that. So we've all made promises that we can't keep for one reason or another. Can I tell you? Any promise that God makes, He keeps. That's a blanket statement. That any promise he makes, he keeps. We cannot make that promise. Only God can make that promise. Yes. Can we continue reading the story? Because I want to look at it more. Look at verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the King. And this will be a sign for you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that has been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. There is the promise, and there's a promise realized. There is a promise realized, yes. In this narrative, as I read it, you know, and I've read it for years, and maybe you have too, and you've heard it so many times, that all, that, that, the only players that I find in this narrative that really make sense to me are the angels. It really is, you know? Because if you're talking about the Savior of the world coming to heal the brokenness of mankind, to keep the promise that we read earlier in Genesis chapter 3, if, if that's what you're talking about, then Mary and Joseph from Nazareth, peasants, so to speak, no social status at all. And then I have to look at this, you know, realistically, and then you have... The, the, you have shepherds, angels, they make sense. They really do. The angel band in heaven, that really makes sense a lot. But you have Mary and Joseph from Nazareth, and then you have the shepherds. And if you look historically at shepherds, what we know about them is that they are, they're nomads. And they're known as being thieves, and they're known as being trustless. They're rejected by their own culture. They're unable to make testimony in court because they can't be believed. They, they can't trade in the marketplace because they're known to be dishonest. They can't enter into any kind of legal contract in their own culture. That's who he comes to. And when shepherds, you know, like when shepherds fly home for Christmas, that they're the one that TSA always pulls out of line and takes them to the little room on the side. They are, yes, because they're, they're not trustworthy. Shepherds are just not trustworthy. And, and to wrap your mind around this, angels heralding the birth of Christ, that was cultural for that time. Not angels, but yet when you had a firstborn son, 
that you would hire heralders who would go around and they would announce that you had a son born. It was sort of the first century form of Twitter. It was a way of tweeting at that time, but they had no phones to do it on, you know? So they would simply send out heralders to do all that. All that is understandable completely. But the rub that I have with all of this is that angels appear to shepherds. Why? That is scandalous that that would happen in this story. And, and I, I have this imagination of that moment when that happened, that, that the shepherds you know, are in the field, they're thieves and they're nomads, and all of a sudden God shows up with this angel band around them. And it's not like he finds them huddled around a fire having, you know, they're engaged in a, a Rick Warren study on the purpose-driven life. That's not what they're doing. Understand that. that. No, in my mind, they're sitting around the fire counting up all the stuff that they've stole from the townspeople. That's exactly what they're doing, you know? That's a kind of, and all of a sudden, boom, the sky is filled with angels, and there's this announcement, good news to all people. And, and I can imagine they're hiding things, you know, they've stole. And all of a sudden, there's this flurry, and everywhere you see cigarettes and beer flying all over the place, they're trying to kind of clean up. And then don't take that the wrong way. You know what I mean, okay, right? Yes. And so you have to hit, get this setting that they're trying to clean up their act because all of a sudden, the sky around them is filled with angels. God, I love God because God always operates the opposite in the way I think. Yes, He does. He always operates opposite in the way I actually think. That this is God's team that he comes to. Shepherds. This is God's team. And the beauty of that for you and I is this. That it makes room for us. That's what this is about. That it makes room for us. That Mary, Joseph, and a den of thieves, so to speak. That he steps into the mess of our lives. That he's not coming to those that are perfect. They have everything in line. He's not coming to those that have massive portions of Scripture remembered. And I'm not excluding those in our current day and culture. But yet he comes to shepherds, lowly shepherds in a field that night to simply give you and I a message that there's room for us. There's room for us with him in his presence. I love that. I love that. I, I think what best describes this, if you go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 for a moment. I love this text. Oh, it, it, it has been, it's such a powerful thing. 2 Corinthians 4 and 7. But we have this treasure in clay jars that Paul says. We have this treasure in clay jars to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Yes. What is the greatest act of God's power on behalf of man, mankind? And that is that, well, it's not about what we can do. It's not about what our power is. But yet that God takes clay jars and he fills them with treasure. He invades our life is what this means. That he takes the imperfection of who we are, the fragileness of our lives, of those that think, oh, well, we're in control, but yet we're not. Absolutely not. That no matter how much we work out, it doesn't always work out the best way for us in life. No matter how much organic spinach we eat, no matter how much emergency that we drink in our life, that there are going to be times that you're going to ask God to kill you because you're so sick. It's going to happen. It is going to happen because we're fragile. We are jars of clay that we know from Genesis 3 
that we're broken. We're broken in the sin and the fragileness of our lives. That there is relationship struggles that we have. There's doubt and there's fear. We deal with sin. And so what we find in our lives is that we're a clay pot. And if you've been wondering what this is about, then that's what this is about. It's a clay pot. Yes. I love it because Paul uses this analogy. It describes us so well that how fragile, how fragile these things. When I bought these this week, that was my biggest fear of getting them out of the store without breaking them. Is That was the biggest deal, you know? And I thought, you know what? I have to have this thing in one piece because here's the thing I want to do. I want to take a hammer to it this morning is what I want to do. Yes. Because this represents our life. It wasn't my idea. It wasn't my idea that Paul chose this. It was his. God speaking through him. Because it truly represents our lives. That we are fragile. And I think to really understand Luke chapter 2 and the narrative of that of Advent, that we have to understand who we are because then it just absolutely amplifies in such a powerful way what Christ has done or God has done for us through sending his son, the God-man Christ Jesus, to die for our lives. And so we have fear and we have brokenness in our life. And so uh, I, I have looked forward to this all morning, okay? I really have, yes, because I thought maybe better to bring a baseball bat and to just hit it. But then all of you up front are like in the shard section, you know, that you're going to be picking clay pot out of your hair and your skin for a while. But yet, you know, we look at ourselves and we think, I can control all of my life and I can control everything about me. And the reality, Paul says, no, here's what you are, that you are a clay pot. Easier than I thought. Yes? And, and so that's me. And when I see myself in light of that, again, it goes back to that question, can I fix myself? And the answer is no. And so that's why God comes down to the garden in that moment of rescue in Genesis chapter 3 in the audience of Adam and Eve, and he simply preaches to Satan. And he says, hey, I know what you've done. Nothing is hid from me. But I'm going to fix this because I know my children or my creation are broken. But I'm going to fix this. And so he comes, as we've read in the book of Luke, and he sends his son, that of the story of Advent, because you and I are, are clay pots. But he doesn't stop there. <laughs> if, if that was just the, the end of this, I think that it would be wonderful and it would be so majestic. But he goes on through the writings of Paul and he says this, here's what happens. That I, just, I take the brokenness of your life. That you are still that human. And what I do is I take and I feel you would treasure. My presence is what he says. I feel you would treasure. These are real diamonds this morning. I just wanted to share that with you, okay? I wasn't aware that you could buy diamonds in the bag from Michael's. That is amazing, okay? But can I tell you, they're all gone because I bought every last one of them, okay? So there are none there if you happen to go there today. And so what he says, that in our brokenness, in that fragility of our own life, that he begins to fill us with treasure. And, and you say, but wait a minute. God, God does that when we have everything together. 
God does that when we have fixed everything within us, then that's, that's when he does that. And what I realize is that, no, no, he meets us exactly where we are living. That is why that angels came to shepherds in the middle of the night around a campfire in the middle of all of their dysfunction that they came to them because it's God sending you a message and me a message that says there's room for you, is what he's saying. Because he takes clay pots and he fills them with treasure. And that treasure is his presence. What a powerful thought. That's his presence. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, you know what? That, you know, Mark, I know some shepherds and I'm sure glad that they're here this morning because they really need to hear that, you know? And, and you know how we always feel really good about ourselves because we use the person next to us as some kind of measuring device of where we are in our lives. And I believe what the Advent story does, it levels the ground. It takes all of that out of play. It does. It takes all that out of play. Because I think the greatest thing I could say to you on Christmas Sunday morning is that this room this morning, this room smells a whole lot like sheep in this room. You know why? Because it's full of shepherds. It's full of brokenness. It's full of people that have tried to fix themselves. Yes. It's full of us who think that sometimes we're in control of everything and we can manipulate our lives to work a certain way. And it's not saying that you don't plan and you don't work for things. I'm not saying that and you understand that. But yet we have this mindset that I can work all this out. And, and what the Advent story reminds us of is that we are broken. And the heart and the nature of God the Father is that He looked upon us with love and mercy and compassion, even though He has wrath toward our sin. And He said that at some point in the future, I will send one born of a woman, born of flesh, who will fix all of this. That's the story of Advent. That's the story of Advent. Can I finish with verse 20 for a moment? And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard, heard and seen, as it had been told them. It's the promise and our monotony. And you say, Mark, what, is, what does that mean? Because when I read this text with imagination, I see the angels as they come before Mary that moment in the manger as they relate to her the things that the angel had told them. And my mind goes back to the culture that they're in and that of the thought of shepherds. And I wonder if at some point in that manger, that whoever might be there that night, did they think, is this really trustworthy because of who's bringing the message? Was there anyone there that evening that may have thought, Wait a minute, this is shepherds, and we know what shepherds do. And what I realize is this, that when the shepherds return, what do they return to? They return to shepherding. But the Bible says that they return to shepherding rejoicing. 
And it's such a powerful thought of how the glory and the presence of God comes into our life, even in the monotony of our life, even when circumstances may not be changing around us, but it brings joy in our life in the middle of those circumstances. Because I have no reason to believe, nor do you, that when the shepherds left that night from the stable, that the social standing of all shepherds changed. That somehow they became these respected parts of society. That somehow they became leaders in their community and all those kinds of things. That what I believe is this, that still they were looked down upon in their culture. They were still despised as members of their society. They were still looked, but yet something changed within them. And I think that's the resounding idea here of this Advent story is this. That when we come to Christ, when we realize that we're broken in need of a Savior, when we come to Him, when we confess our sins to Him, when we invite Him to come into our life and He takes residence in a clay pot that is extremely fragile, but yet that is filled with treasure, that of the presence of God within our lives, that that doesn't always change the things around us. It doesn't always change everything around us. It doesn't always fulfill all those unrealistic expectations of Christmas that every rift in your family is going to be fixed and all those things are going to be taken care of and you're going to be the happiest person on the face of the earth because you can have everything you ever desired this year. That is not the promise of Advent. The promise of Advent is this, that God comes. God comes in the form of Jesus. He dwells in clay pots of men, the imperfection of our lives. He lives within us. So he gives us hope in the middle of our circumstances, even when they don't change. And change is something that we both fear and desire within our lives. 2 Corinthians 3 and 18, and I finish with this this morning. It says, and we all with unveiled face, those that believe in Christ, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. That when we look upon Christ, that we are changed within our lives, that there's a transformation, transformation that takes place. So he defines that. He says, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This one degree of change. And I think that what happens is that sometimes we come on mornings like this and we have this moment with God We make this surrender to Christ in our lives and we walk out that door and we think that there's going to be this 180 change in our life and we're not going to have the desires that we once have and everybody in our our life is going to love us even though we've been the most horrible person to probably live with in our family, that all those things are going to work out like they do in the movies and we struggle when they don't. But what the beauty of this promise is, is this. That when we behold God's glory and that transformation takes place in our life, it's from one degree of glory to another. It's that one moment at a time. It's that one thing that changes. It's that moment when we realize that we are broken vessels in need of a Savior and that God fills us with His presence and that that gives us hope when our circumstances, even our life, don't always change. And so God changes us one moment at a time. So when you leave today, Everything in your life may not work out exactly like you want. I wish I could tell you it would. Wouldn't that be amazing? But it may not. 
And all the people you've been praying for to change, they may be the same. And they look at you and they think, well, you haven't changed much either. You know, kind of thing, right? But what I realize is that when we gaze upon the Savior, when we understand a need in our life for Him, that there is this change from one degree to another, that God is working in our lives. It's about looking upon Him as our Savior this morning. That's the story of Advent this morning. Would you bow your heads for a moment? Father, you looked down in the brokenness of our lives, and Lord, you initiated change through your promise in sending your Son that the world has never been the same, that history itself has been absolutely redefined and affected. So, Father, in this moment of reflection, God, we have to look at our hearts and we say, what needs changing in our lives? And this is not about behavioral altercations of just being a better person. This is not about being a a more moral person or even a more ethical person. But this goes beyond that to our own hearts. What needs to change in our hearts today? And so, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, as you illuminate things in our lives that maybe we don't see for face value, that you would, Lord, bring those things to our sight right now, that what needs to be changed within us. Father, let it start with our heart. Let it start with our heart today, God. The sin of our lives, let it begin there in a moment of repentance before you. The recognition of who you are and that you've come into my life right where I am. Not the fixed mark Not the perfection of Mark. Because that is not going to happen until your return. But yet where I am now. At this moment. God, you are the only one that can fix me today. And I recognize that. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment before we sing. I would just like to ask you by faith in a moment, just by a step of faith, that you would say, Mark, there's, there are things broken in my life, and today I, I, I want to surrender those and submit those to Christ. And maybe that's sin, and maybe that's a relationship, or, or I don't know, I could go on this very long list of things with you this morning, but you know, you know. But Mark, there are things in my life that are broken, and I recognize that I can no longer fix them. But I know that Christ can. And so I surrender. I surrender those things to him this morning. If that's you, just put raise your hand by faith saying, that's me. It's, maybe it's your heart, your mind. Maybe, maybe it's a fear in your life, a doubt. I don't know what it might be. But I tell you what, it's not by chance that you're here, but you're here because God's providence brought you here this morning to understand that you are broken to realize that it is only God that places treasure in broken vessels. 
to understand that he is the one that fixes humanity. So, Father, we accept you today. We accept your forgiveness. We accept your love. We trust you this morning. We trust you this morning, Father. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Father. So for a moment, take a moment to search your heart and to search your life as we sing this song together. And then we'll end with winter snow this morning.